Let's pray as we consider this, this text this morning. Our Father, we need something of permanence. Many of us are addicted to the little rush of dopamine that we get when we hear a notification ding on our phones. Uh, but that doesn't last. Um, these things that we pursue in our life don't last. But your word does. All flesh is like grass, it's glory like the flowers, the grass withers, the flowers fade. But your word stands forever. So we ask that you would help us to root our lives in something that is permanent. and something that will last forever. In your word. We pray for your spirit to be active in our midst for that to happen. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Way back in February of 2020, Garth Brooks did a concert in Detroit, Michigan. And before he went on stage, he put on, his, on him uh, a jersey, something that every Michigan person would recognize and many Oklahomans would recognize, actually. It was a, it was a Detroit Lions jersey with the number 20 on back and the name Sanders. Right? Now... Seems pretty straightforward, nod to Barry Sanders, one of the greatest running backs of all time, nod to the Motor City, the Detroit Lions. Well, Twitter just went on fire over this thing, because you'll you'll also remember that this was when the Democratic presidential primaries were hot underway. Remember names like uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, of course, actually got the nomination. People saw Sanders and 20, and they thought Garth was making a political statement. He was endorsing Bernie Sanders. And listen to some of the comments that people made on on Twitter in reply to this tweet. Love you. Hate the shirt. Trump, 2020. Weird that a millionaire would like a socialist. Hey, Garth, are you going to distribute distribute your millions? Another, Another person said, what are you saying? Are you a communist or a socialist? Either way, you're a loser. Someone else, just threw out your CD. I had no idea you were a big freaking liberal socialist. I've listened to your songs for the last time. And, and we could go on. There were all kinds of Twitter rage about this, this confusion, right? There was somebody that kind of jumped on the irony of it and said, and said this, Sanders, question mark, for real? How much did KFC pay you to wear this? Keep fast food out of your music. KFC wants chicken for all. Show me a country that has succeeded with a chicken for all policy. Hashtag Popeyes 2020. (laughs) Now, what this little uh, social media flare-up reveals is that we're we're pretty edgy as a people. We're very judgmental, very judgy. Uh, We're not very just. We, we we, we, We lack the care the competency, the power to enact any sort of significant justice in the world. I mean, we, we, we become irate over just confusion, misunderstanding. We, th- we throw these temper tantrums online, and we think that by, by kind of just throwing our, our rage out there into the, into the world wide web, we've somehow done the world a favor. But that's not how justice works. We can't do it. Now, here's one of the ironies, too, of our age. 
We're very judgmental as a people. Have you felt that, especially the last couple of years? Have you seen a lot of irate judgment flowing all over the place? Left, right, middle, doesn't, it doesn't matter where you are. On any spectrum, people are just mad. They're angry. And they like to make these very judging comments. Now, here's one of the ironies, though. On the one hand, we're maybe some of the most judgmental folks in recent history, at least. And on the other, we've got no place for a judging God. The idea of a God that is a judge is just repulsive. We don't like that. And yet, it kind of makes sense. Think about my, my eight-year-old's going to play soccer today. Organized soccer. So they'll, they'll be out on the field. There will be the team. They're all uniformed up. They've got coaches on the sidelines. They've got a referee that's decked out in a little soccer kind of get-up. And he's going to be blowing the whistle, making calls, doing all that. And guess what happens? When there is a judge over the activity that's happening on the field, all the players are relieved from having to make judgments themselves. They can kind of rest in the judge that's over the whole game, a more neutral, fair party. Now, if they're playing, there's a playground over there that you can kind of see, a field at least. If, they're, if the same eight-year-olds are playing soccer, just pick up soccer at a playground at recess, then there's going to be a lot of judging going on from those players, is there not? A lot of judgments coming out. Hey, you were out of bounds. That ball went out. No, it didn't. It went in. That was a goal. No, it wasn't. Right? Because there's no judge. And so what happens? Everybody has to become a judge. And maybe that's a bit of our predicament. We have no God as judge. And so we, we feel kind of the task. We put it upon ourselves. We got we to gotta start accounting for some things. We got to start dealing with some things. And so we take to Twitter. We take to Facebook. We take to whatever your little outlet is. We take to those things. And we spew out kind of our judgments. And oftentimes they lack care. They lack competency. We need a judging God. That's a, a judging God is a good God. That's the kind of God we want. Listen to what J.I. Packer says. Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? Would a God who put no distinction between the beasts of history like Hitler and Stalin and the saints of history... Would a God who made no distinction between those, those different types of people be morally praiseworthy and perfect? Moral indifference would be imperfection in God, not perfection. But not to judge the world would be a show of moral indifference. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being and not indifferent to questions of right and wrong is the fact that he has committed himself to judge the world. It's, a, it's not something that we hide or sort of like kind of defend God and his judgment. It's part of his perfection that he's a judging God. And this is precisely what the Bible reveals, that God is a judge. Exodus 34 is, is um, one of the most famous statements about who God is. It's often called the Exodus 34 character of God. Listen to what it says. This is verse, Exodus 34, verses 6 and following. Turn there if you like. We'll, we'll come back to it, actually, So, uh, if you want to bookmark it. Exodus 34, chapter 6. I mean, I'm sorry, chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, with the, the Hebrew word is hesed, this, this beautiful, steadfast love that keeps going is faithful. 
He's abounding in that. He's abounding in faithfulness. He's keeping that steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Now do you see it? The character of we we sometimes think like the Old Testament God was the judging God and the New Testament God was the merciful God. No, Exodus thirty four. It's the, the, God is marked by His Hesed, His His steadfast love. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's also just. And these two aspects perfect God in His nature and in His being. And we've seen it in two stories. We've seen this character of God play out in the Abraham story. There's been two passages the last two weeks that we looked at where God revealed his gracious promises to Abraham and to Sarah. I'm going to give you a child through whom I'm going to bless the whole world through the line of of this miraculous child Isaac that you will have. And twice God has told Abraham that. And now we get two passages where we are going to see the justice of God unfold. And so we've got kind of a two-parter this, we, this week and next week. We're, this week we're going to consider judgment deliberated. And next week we're going to consider judgment delivered. And hopefully in the process we'll see God um, as more glorious as a result. That this justice of God is not something that we have to be embarrassed about or embarrassed by, but it's something that, makes, that, that, that is part of God's perfection. So that's the plan Uh, Judgment deliberated. There's three points this morning. The judge's care, the judge's competency, and the judge's mercy. So the judge's care, competency, mercy. So first, the judge's care. Uh, Verse 16 in our passage this morning. It says, The men men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went, went with them to set them on their way. So the men, the two angels, and the Lord... Uh, That's the men that have just visited Abraham in his tent and told Sarah the good news that in in Abraham that God is going to deliver Isaac. They're now leaving Abraham's encampment and they make their way towards Sodom. And it says that Abraham kind of gives them the old grandparent send off. Like he walks with them out. He gives them a hearty wave. And then the Lord begins to inquire within himself. And says in verses 17 and 19, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And look at the Lord says to Abraham, he, he does. Look at verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And here we see the judge's care. Do you see what he's doing? There's a cry of injustice that's risen from these cities. And God says, I am going to go and investigate the matter. I'm going to go down and see for myself. I'm going to consider the cry that has come to me. It's not knee-jerk. It's not arbitrary, you know, just sort of rage. What? They did what? You know, Twitter, take that. No, he's going to go down and, and consider. He's going to investigate. It's not, it, it's not the Sanders 20 wearing a number 20 jersey. Garth Brooks wearing that jersey. It's not that. He's going to consider. 
Our justice is uneven, it's sloppy, it's misguided, it doesn't take care to get things right. But God's, on the other hand, he's, he's considering. Ex- that Exodus 34 passage that I mentioned said that God is slow to anger. Do you know what the, the Hebrew literally says there? Is that he has a short, um, that he has a long nostril. He's long of nostril. Now what does that mean? He's got he's like a gonzo. Long of nostril, short of nostril. Dane Ortland in that Gentle and Lowly book that we keep plugging, has a great chapter on this. Short nostril means short-tempered. Like you can imagine like a bull pawing at the ground. Ortland gives us this picture. A bull pawing at, at the ground, his nose, his nostril is flaring with anger and he's about to attack. The Lord has a long nostril. It takes him a long, he has to be provoked to anger. That's the language. You've provoked me to anger. He doesn't have to be provoked to love. You poke God, and what happens? Love comes forth. Love gushes from God. But he's, he's provoked to anger, and interestingly, the opposite is said of us. We're called in Hebrews chapter 10 to be provoked to love one another. You poke us, and what comes out? Anger. Rage, frustration, irritation. But you, but you poke God, love comes out. He's slow to anger. That's what it, he's long-nostriled. But that doesn't mean that he will not set things right. You, many of you, I'm guessing, watched football yesterday. You know, the instant replay moment. There's a call made, and there's questions concerning the call, and so the refs kind of huddle around a screen, and they begin to look at it from every possible angle that they can see, trying to get, was his toe in, was it out, trying to get the exact uh, precision on the call, and then they finally deem their verdict. This is what God is doing. He's, he's going down, and he's carefully considering the case against Sodom. And he also takes two angels with him. It was said that two uh, witnesses needed to be present in order to prosecute a capital offense. And so, accordingly and appropriately, the Lord takes the two angels with him to Sodom. So, that's a bit on the judge's care. Now I want us to consider the judge's competency. That our Lord, the judge, is competent. And we see it in this question that Abraham asked the Lord. He stands before the Lord and he asks a question. Look at verse 23 and and following. Abraham says, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will, Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in the city? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. And this is this is the important part. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Shouldn't the judge of all the earth do what is right? That's what Abraham asks. Now, we're going to get to the the 50 and the righteous and the wicked. We're going to get to that in a moment. But right now, focus. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? That's what Abraham is asking. And it's important what Abraham's calling God. He's calling him the judge of all the earth. That's who he is. The world, the universe, it's his creation. He is, as he's revealed multiple times to Abraham, El Shaddai, God Most High. 
He's the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of all creation. That's who He is. And so it's His prerogative to judge the earth. Think of it this way. Imagine that a house has just been built. And the house is like alive. You know, the kitchen tile, they're all talking to each other, the parts of the house. The kitchen tile's looking up at the wooden beams and the, and the ceiling of the thing and saying, you look kind of crooked. I think you're off-centered. And the wooden beam's looking down at the stove and says, you, you look out of place. Or your color doesn't match the fridge. And the fridge is looking down at the kitchen light saying, you're too bright. And all the little parts of the house are deeming, making their judgments upon the house. But here's the problem. They have no perspective, no vantage point from which to see the whole and see how the apparently crooked beam fits with the whole design of the house. And what this is saying now, and by the way, who's the only person fit to judge the design of the house? The designer of the house, the architect or the builder, or the, the person that put the thing together, that conceived it and master planned it. That's the person who's in the right spot to deem and judge the home for its integrity and design quality. In the same way, we are part of a tiny little blip of history, a tiny little spot in the span of human history. There are, there are uh, injustices that have gone back. There's just injustices that will continue to move forward. We don't have the perspective or the vantage point to judge, but the king of creation does, the judge of all the earth does, and he will bring us judgment. Our, all of our rage that we feel when it comes to our desire to judge, it may feel warranted, whether it's the Twitter rage or the road rage or the mom and dad rage that we have, or our Afghan exit strategy rage, or whatever kind of rage we might have, it may feel very good and warranted and very right. But it's ignorant. It's, it's oftentimes hasty. It's sometimes too weak or it's sometimes too severe that we feel towards another. And it very rarely looks inside. All the judge that we have is outward facing. You messed up. You screwed up. That doesn't look good. It never turns in on itself. There's a lot to be judged within. That's really the place to start, by the way. Our own hearts. In the prophets, uh, the Lord, when the Lord brings a case against his people, like a court case, do you know who he calls upon to stand in as witnesses in the prophets? The mountains, because the mountains have, have been there for thousands of years. They've witnessed the actions of his people, not just in a single lifetime, but over the generations. Over the generations, they've witnessed it, they've seen it. And so God calls the mountains in. Because people, humanity, doesn't have the competency to judge accurately. God sees what goes on. God knows he's the judge of the earth because he created it. Now, our moral rage is a really good thing to kind of consider because it does point to the fact that we're moral beings, that we have kind of this moral sense. I mean, think about if you're parents of a, of a child, think about how quickly it is before your child starts thinking in terms of right and wrong and has this awareness of justice. You're reading a book to them or watching a movie and they say, is that a good guy? Is that a bad guy? 
Right? They've got this sense of right and wrong. And if you, as a parent, wrongly accuse your child, maybe they didn't do something, but you accuse them of doing it, there's outrage. And understandably so. They're experiencing an, an injustice in that moment, aren't they? So my, my point is this. We, we do care about judgment. Have you watched a movie that kind of told the story of an injustice and it kind of sticks with you or read a story about an injustice? It sticks with you for days. It sticks in your, in your, in your crawl, right? It's difficult. We don't like it. We want it to be set right. But we're not careful or competent enough to handle the task of judging the world's wrongs. Think about all the work that it takes just to judge a single wrong. Just one. It takes some of the brightest minds we have that have gone to years and years of training to get their law degree or you know, whatever the degree is. It takes, it takes a judge who has acquired lots of experience. It takes hours and days and weeks of investigation. It takes a case being presented, defended. It takes a whole host of people that are supposedly kind of neutral people on the case to deliberate for hours and days the case that's been presented and after all of that one wrong in this world or maybe just a little sprinkling of wrongs has been dealt with sometimes well sometimes not that's what it takes to get judgment right among us we're, talk, we're talking about, I'm talk, when I talk about judgment, I'm talking about let's judge every wrong. Not just the ones that are illegal or the ones that have been caught or whatever. Right? You see the difficulty of the task. Now, Abraham here is known by God. Verse 19 says that he's been chosen by him. And actually the word that's used there is to, 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 to know, that God knows Abraham. It's the same word used to describe um, sexual intercourse in the Old Testament, right? It's a, it, it connotes an intimate covenantal knowing that God is covenantally relating to Abraham, his beloved. And um, he knows him and so Abraham does what those who know God and God, who God knows regularly do. He brings his questions to God. He brings his doubts. He pleads before God. God, and he asks all these questions. Now, here's the thing. When we have doubts rise in our hearts, when we have questions, maybe you're having questions right now about the very topic of this sermon. God, I don't understand how this is going to work. When we have that bubble up, our temptation is to kind of suppress it and, 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 and say, get it out. I'm not going to bring it before God. And then we kind of have this low-level doubt fester in our hearts. What you see the people of Scripture do, kind of the, the, hall of, the, 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 the faithful hall of fame, right? The people that actually wrote the Bible. They're regularly bringing their questions and their doubts to God. Read the Psalms. Read Habakkuk and Jonah and Job. These are, these are the faithful bringing their questions and good questions before the Lord. Why do you do this? How is this happening? This isn't just. Why do the wicked get blessed and the righteous suffer? These are the questions. It's called theodicy, right? It's questioning God and his actions and his rightness and justice. 
And we see the people of Scripture doing that. And Abraham's bringing his questions here. Now, those that are unfaithful kind of in our secular age that we live in, they don't have any room for pondering that. They're, they've kind of, they've, you know, case closed on the matter of God's judgment. There is no judging God that, you know, that's kind of offensive. It's offensive to me, so we're going to scrap that out and hope for a better legal system, better political system, better judicial, what, you know, whatever it is. We're going to hope for something better. But the Christian is, is open on the topic. It's considering the judgment of God, wrestling with it, wondering why it seems to never go forth. Or when it does, it goes forth, justice goes forth perverted. Why is that the case? God, what are you doing? And Abraham is doing some of that. One of the reasons I think we have such a difficulty with the judgment of God is that we have, by and large, with a number of exceptions, but not many, a pretty cushy life. We Americans. One observer of America said this. In spite of all the evidence, and he's an American, by the way. In spite of all the evidence, modern-day Americans keep trying to convince ourselves that happiness is the natural state of our species. That's just how we are. We're just happy. That's how we, that's how we come into this world. That's how life is. He says, we, are, we Americans are unusually naive about the dark side of human life. And throughout the rest of the world, he says, we're known as Pollyannas. That's who we are. We're those kind of bright-eyed, optimist Americans. There's no suffering. Miroslav Volf, the Croatian theologian, uh, has said something similar. He said, you know, part of our difficulty with the idea of, of, of a judging God is that Americans have such a cushy existence, by and large. He grew up in Croatia and, and, later, Serbia's, uh, and later Serbia and witnessed horrible atrocities in a civil war. He said, if you saw your brothers and, and fathers murdered and your sisters and mothers raped and murdered before your eyes, a judging God is not only desirable, it may be the only thing to keep you sane, having witnessed that kind of injustice. And he's right. Part of our resistance to a judging God is our place and moment in history. So now let's consider the final point. We've considered the judge's competency, the judge's care. Now let's consider the judge's mercy. And it comes up in these questions that Abraham asks. It almost sounds like he's at the car dealership, sort of working a, a deal. And just keep lowering the thing. Look what he says, verse 24. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place? And, and listen to the word here. And not forgive your, your translation says spare. The New Revised Standard Version, I think, is better. It says forgive. Will you not forgive the wicked for the 50 righteous who are in it? That's the question. Abraham here is being a blessing to the nations. Exactly what God called him to be. He's interceding for these pagan people. Not, of course, Lot's there, his nephew, and that's significant. But he's not just pleading for Lot. He's pleading for the whole lot, right? The whole, the whole city. Can the righteousness of a few forgive the wickedness of many? That's his question. Can the righteousness of a few forgive the wickedness of many? And God says, yeah. And so Abraham's trying to figure out how few. Now, there's this idea in, um, in, in, in the Bible 
and I think in the world called corporate personality. Um, we don't, we're so individualistic as Americans, but one of the places where corporate personality is still alive and well is in the arena of sports. Um, and what it means is that the actions of a single person represent the whole, okay? So um, I'll give you an example from my, from my own past. I remember being in high school, we were playing a baseball uh, game, late night game, far two hours away from our high school. And on the way home, a knucklehead at the back of the bus threw a can of soda on a car next, next to the bus. And our coach gets up and he sees veins bubbling out of his neck and he's red-faced, he's short-nostrilled, and, and he, he's, you know, he's angry. And you can see him just sitting there at the front of the bus just kind of fuming. And you know, you know it's not going to be good. And you know it's not just going to be good for the guy that threw the can out of the window. It's going to be bad for all of us. And we get back to the field like midnight, and we're running foul pole to foul pole, back and forth, back and forth, like for what seemed like an hour, venting his wrath. And here's the thing. Action of one transferred to many. The Bible accounts for this. I think the real world accounts for this. Like bad nations that are led by bad people for over generations have results and consequences in the people that live under those nations. Corporate personality. And so what Abraham is asking, this is what he's wondering. If corporate personality works in a punitive way, the wickedness of one transferring to, to many, might it not work the reverse? That the righteousness transfer to the many? Could it work that way? Can the rightness of a few be the basis for forgiving many? And he says, what about 50 righteous? And the Lord says, yes. 50 righteous I will not destroy. And then Abraham says, well, what about 45? What about 40? 30? Yes, I will not destroy. 20? 10? And then Abraham stops. And you, you, you get the sense Abraham's really sort of cautiously, deferentially approaching the Lord. Like, I am but dust and ashes. Please forgive me. Lord, I, I should not be asking this, but please let me ask. And he asks the question. And then, when they get down to ten, the Lord says, I will not destroy it if there are ten righteous. And Abraham goes his way, and the Lord goes down to Sodom. End of story. That's the end. And we're kind of left to wonder, well, what about the righteousness of five? Could the righteousness of five cover the sins of the many? What about the righteousness of one? Could the righteousness of one cover the sins of the many? And as the scriptures unfold, we get a resounding yes to that answer. Paul in Romans 5 said that just as through Adam, at, through one man, Sin entered, in the entered the world, and death spread through sin to all mankind. So it is that through one man, one righteous man, Christ, the God-man, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness came into the world and spread to many. It's corporate personality. You hear that? It's a two-way street. We've inherited the wickedness and sin of, of, of our father Adam. But the good news of the gospel is that God will forgive the many for the righteousness of one. And his son came into this world to, to give himself his perfect righteousness, led him to the cross, and he gives his life, 
thereby opening a way for us to receive His forgiveness, to be covered by Him, by His righteousness, His faithfulness, His death on the cross. And so, what is... This is all wonderful news. And this is the gospel, right? Jesus took our sin upon Himself on the cross so that we might get His blessing and His righteousness. Corporate personality. That's what it is. It's it's, it's our hope. But... That's an important aspect of the gospel. But there's more. Because what is Jesus doing right now? He's doing exactly what Abraham was doing. He's interceding for us. And we don't, we don't talk about this very much. But the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter, chapter 7, verse 25, says that Jesus always lives. What he's doing, right? we said last week that Jesus is preparing a place for us. He's being hospitable to us. He's also doing this. He's interceding for us to the Father for His people. Again, Ortland, I keep plugging this book, Gentle and Lowly. He has a great chapter on this, the intercession of Christ. He says not only was Christ willing and for the joy set before Him underwent the cross, but He's enthusiastically rooting us on and interceding for us right now at this very moment. Listen to, listen to what Ortland says. Christ's heart is a steady reality flowing through time. It isn't as if his heart throbbed for his people when he was on earth, but it's dissipated now that he's in heaven. It's not that his heart was flowing forth in a burst of mercy that took him all the way to the cross, but it's now cooled down a bit, settling once more into kindly indifference. His heart is as drawn to his people now as it ever was in his incarnate state. And the present manifestation of Jesus' heart for us, his people, his church, is his constant interceding on our behalf. That's what he's doing. Ortland says, think of it this way. The atonement accomplished our salvation, and Jesus' constant and present intercession applies it moment by moment by moment. So, important question that comes up, though. Does this mean that the Father... Because who's he interceding to? Well, the Father, God the Father. Does this mean that God the Father is kind of like, well, it was a good idea before the foundations of the world. It was a good idea at the time, but I'm kind of regretting it. Can we go back on that whole gospel cross thing? And Jesus is like, no, please, we got to do it. Please, it was a good idea. Trust, let's just stick with the plan. No, that's not what's going on at all. Ortland says, think, think of it this way. It's like a track race. And the older brother is sitting in the stands, and little brother, who's a track star, is, is running the 400. He's 100 meters ahead of the pack. He's, he's getting close to the finish line. He's going to cross. Like, he's going to win. There's no doubt about it. Does the, does the older brother say, well, I guess he's going to win. There's no point in cheering now. No! That's not what he does. He says... He's, the older brother's yelling at the top of his lungs, exclamation and encouragement. He's going to win. He's, he's affirming. He's celebrating. He's, he's experiencing solidarity with his little brother who's running and going to win the race. He can't be quieted. That's what Jesus is doing for us. Our victory is certain. It's complete. It's accomplished. And he's, his intercession is him cheering us on 
as we reach the finish line, as we're bound for the promised land, we're moving towards it. He's cheering us on. He's interceding to the Father. And there's mutual delight in glorying in the success of the cross towards the church, towards Christ's bride. That's what's going on. And what that means is that God never grows tired of you. He doesn't grow tired of you. He does, he's not like worn thin by you. Again, listen to what Ortland says. He says, Our presence in God's good favor and family will never sputter and die like an engine running out of gas. We might think of it like this. His saving jets never cool. They run white hot forever and ever. So, Exodus 34. Remember the character of God? He's steadfast love, merciful, gracious to generations. He's holy and just and will by no means clear the guilty. And these, these aspects of who God is, these char- characteristics of God, have been brewing and brimming in perfection for all eternity. And so we have a choice this morning. There's a call. We don't do altar calls, but this, this is as close as we get right here. As Packer says, the New Testament gives us an invitation. The coming judge who will come and set all the world right can also be our present Savior. That for those who come to him and receive his forgiveness, they can get out from under Adam and get under Christ and escape his judgment. So would you invite him to be your Savior? It's so hard to believe that the perfect, competent, careful judge, God the Father, vented his wrath perfectly upon his son, executed it perfectly upon his son on the cross, 100% precision, so that we might be forgiven, 100%. That's the good news of the gospel. It's true. It's good. We can bank our lives on it. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your love manifested to us, that it's still being expressed as you're interceding, just like Abraham interceded for for Sodom. You intercede for your bride, proclaiming the success, the shining success of your work on the cross, the perfect righteousness, that our blessing is even greater because you endured the cross, because you were faithful in that regard. Help us to understand these truths of which we live in and and breathe in. And we pray that they would indeed animate us. When we get poked, we don't want anger to come out. We want love to come out. And as we root ourselves in you and your love, that can happen. So we pray that it would. We pray for your mercy. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.